Well, thanks for being here, Dave. I guess to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in suicide prevention? What's your interest here? Well, I'm uh, happy to be here, Joe, and I think my interest in this has been now pretty longstanding. I'm going into my third decade of, uh, of working in the field. Ever since graduate school, uh, Dr. Lanny Berman was my mentor in, in my master's program, and then I stayed on and got my PhD at American University. So Lanny was my guided me into the field, and um, I, I got to meet a lot of people through him initially. And, and then I, I feel like I've kind of grown up in the field. I've gone to the AAS meeting, the American Association of Suicidology meeting, for a number of consecutive years, and uh, this has been my life's work. It's, I didn't really set out to become a suicidologist or a suicide mention person. I, I sort of backed my way into it, but once I found it, I, I, it, to me, it was sort of the perfect field because we could do important work, especially on the clinical side of things, you know, make a difference, hopefully save some lives along the way. So it's been, for me, a really compelling line of work. I have followed your work ever since I got into the VA back in the early 2000s. And at that time when I joined the VA, we were doing some research on CAMs. So can you tell us about how well, give us a bit of a background on CAMS and talk a little bit about CAMS in the VA for us. So when I first, I actually interned at um, the Washington, D.C. VA Medical Center. And so I had a VA um, experience from the get-go. I My first traineeship, in fact, was a summer placement in 1984. So I, I've been involved in, in VA um, mental health care for a long time. And when I uh, left my internship, there was a, a job, a joint appointment at Catholic University, which is just across the street from the VA hospital. And I was working in the counseling center um, for two-thirds time and in the psych department at one-third time. Uh, my boss there had an interest in suicide prevention, and he was concerned that we were not sufficiently identifying, in this case, counseling center students, uh, clients, sufficiently. And he wanted me to scour the literature and find the assessment tools that would, you know, be a sort of a standardized assessment that we would use. And then the big thing that he said to me was that we don't want these kids falling through the cracks, and I want you to figure out a system for doing that. So I had done this this sort of esoteric research with medical examiners and psychological autopsies in grad school, and I was really craving to get more into a clinical line of things. So this was like a perfect um, charge that was given to me. And we did a survey uh, of clinicians. It was not a, a gigantic survey. We got a small seed grant from the American Association of Suicidology. And we asked a, a sample, but uh, I'm not remembering how many, but you know, maybe 100 clinicians, what they did to assess suicide risk. And it turns out they don't use assessment tools. Uh, they still don't. And they don't use psychological tests. Um, what they do is conduct clinical interviews. And there's actually a really interesting literature on clinical interviews and and clinical judgment and how much better assessment tools do than clinician gut judgments worked by Paul Meal and, and others, actually. And so we, we kind of looked at the results of the survey and said, gosh, we, we really need a lot of help with this. We need to get better at assessing risk in a certain systematic and reliable way and then tracking that risk. And so that was the, the genesis of the Suicide Status Form, or the SSF. Started out rather innocently um, as a, a fairly simple tool, and then we evolved it over 
basically I've been there now almost 29 years so uh, over the next number of years um, and then did the proper te test construction you know tested it for its validity and reliability and added qualitative assessments and so the the long-winded story is that you know it was just sort of a, an evolving line of assessment research in a counseling center setting where we would then track risk until basically that the, the, there was a clinical improvement and then we would call it a day. We would say that they, that they had resolved their suicide risk and, and that was actually the first cohort study we published in 97, the, that I'm aware of at least, of intaking a group of, this case, in this case, suicidal college students and just watching what happened to them over the course of their care in a university counseling center. And that's how things kind of got started. Oh, that's very so, interesting. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I did that for a number of years and there was some initial um, interest in VA. People were always looking for good assessment tools or ways to keep track of clients or patients. And we kept on doing more and more research. And I was in the counseling center world or, or lane for a fairly long time, but then there were um, other interests. And a, a big one for me was with the Air Force. One of my former students was actually an Air Force officer in Colorado. Uh, Peterson Air Force Base and at uh, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And every third airman that he was seeing coming through his clinic was saying that they were suicidal. And he was um, he was actually pretty overwhelmed by that, you know, by that flow. And so we really jumped on that opportunity to start to further develop the use of the SSF uh, as an assessment tool. That was a very fruitful line of work. There was continued interest and we kept that branching out and, and moving in different directions. But the long and the short of it was when you do enough assessment work, especially the kind that we did, which was both quantitative and qualitative, you get to a point where you say, gosh, I know a lot about the suicidal mind, a lot about different suicidal states, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. Now what? And that really sort of begged the question of, of getting into treatment and looking at um, an intervention that, that builds off of this assessment. And that's where, um, in my own history, I had a, a very pivotal experience with Marshall Linehan, who pushed me hard to get into treatment research and getting funding for clinical trials and uh, getting grants and that type of thing, which I was not um, particularly adept at at the time. And she mentored me into that business. And then I met up with some of the folks in your shop at, in the Denver VA, uh, Lisa Brenner and Peter Gutierrez, and we started doing some early kind of feasibility trials. So the SSF kind of had, had at that point evolved into the collaborative assessment management of suicidality, which is a particular way of administering the SSF. And what it's in its most recent incarnations really evolved into is a full-blown suicide-specific intervention. So that's a bit of a long-winded story, but I mean, that's it was a an evolution that occurred over about a 20 25-year period, and now we're doing and have been doing over the last five to ten years um, randomized controlled trials of CAMS as a clinical intervention. And we've got some really pretty exciting data um, in terms of it as a treatment outcome kind of intervention. Along the way, VA has been interested. Uh, I did a I did a sabbatical and a couple sabbaticals ago uh, with the, the support of the central office in the Canandaigua. Um, Center of Excellence to, to do a, a large-scale training of CAMS in Business 7, which are the medical centers in, El, in Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. And that was an interesting experience. And then um, there's been other – I probably have trained maybe 
20 different VA medical centers across three or four different visions or networks of VA hospitals. So um, there's been a lot of interest in CAMS and continued interest in CAMS, especially of late. It's so interesting to me to, to see how you've stayed with this idea, but not it's evolved over time. And I'm really, you were saying that you've had some really exciting results from the randomized control trials that you've been doing. And can you tell us about those? Sure. So, you know, a lot of the initial clinical trials were not randomized. So we had uh, a counseling center study that was non-randomized. We had uh, this Air Force study that had a comparison control group naturalistically, but with no randomization. There were a couple of studies in Denmark, the Danes are very excited about CAMS, and it's interesting, they're very psychoanalytically oriented, so because CAMS is a framework, it, it accommodates different theoretical orientations and, and different kinds of techniques and disciplines. And then we've had an adapted version of it at the Menninger Clinic in Houston with uh, our collaborator Tom Ellis there. So there are a number of these non-randomized um, trials within subject trials, open trials, and we always got replicated robust data that CAMS was and using the SSF in this collaborative side-by-side -side kind of way was showing, you know, nice rapid reductions in ideation and overall symptom distress and that patients liked it and that it was, uh, you know, it was a systematic way of tracking risk. And um, that was all well and good, but it was really Marshall Linehan who kind of said, you know, this is uh, great, but you really need to get into the randomized control business because you're not really getting at causality. And so we we went in with Dr. Gutierrez and Dr. Brenner and did a, a pilot RCT, feasibility RCT that you might be aware of it in the Denver VA that really did not play out the way we'd hoped, but we learned a ton um, in that trial. And a lot of this goes to systems of care issues and, and sort of the workload that VA providers are, are facing. And um, I can say a lot more about that. But we had a, a parallel trial that was funded um, by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in Seattle with Kate Comtois, and that was a small feasibility trial that was uh, successful beyond our expectations. The, it was a, a relatively small trial uh, with 30 patients, essentially randomized to a con control group and to CAMS uh, with very limited statistical power, and we got um, significance on everything, on our primary and secondary outcomes. So that was the, the first kind of foothold of getting some traction on randomized controlled trials. And since then, there, there have been um, an RCT that was published out of Denmark comparing dialectical behavior therapy to CAMS. That's a superiority trial uh, that was published last year. There's a, an ARMY trial that we're in the process of writing up and, and submitting uh, for um, different articles. There is a really cool um, study funded by NIMH using a smart design, which is a multiple randomization design, which is quite elegant because it gets to dosing and different intensities of care. And that compares treatment as usual to CAMS to a second stage of randomization that would also bring in DBT. And what we're pretty much consistently seeing across the RCTs is that CAMS quickly reduces ideation in about six to eight sessions. Again, we see an overall symptom distress reduction, increased hope, better clinical retention. We have um, some frustratingly promising data out of the, the, the Danish study where CAMS was pretty good on self-harm and attempt behavior as well as it was actually as effective as dialectical behavior therapy, which we didn't expect because DBT is so well established. 
but it was a bit underpowered. So the, the trendy data was actually very supportive of CAMS. And we just keep at it. We've got a current trial of patients coming out of the hospital in Seattle. There's a trial that's an ongoing in, in Norway by colleagues in Oslo. And a new trial that just started up in uh, Germany, um, Mariam Santel's group, and uh, that's an inpatient version of CAMS, a well-powered RCT. So we, we really have been in, immersed in the clinical trial endeavors of late, and uh, for, you know we really see now some coalescing of some of that data in exciting ways. that these RCTs are so important is that, and I think you touched on this, is that they really start to get at um, that causality. Is that right? In science, a lot of feel that RCTs may be overly manualized or too rigid, but it's hard to, to know if something actually works unless you do a randomized control trial. Um, the other thing about RCTs, there's a lot of things that we assume work, which you just don't know until you actually establish that causal relationship. And the other thing which never occurs to people is that things could be harmful. And RCTs help you understand what's you, – you never want to be doing harm, but RCTs help us understand what not only is effective in a causal way, but what actually might not be helpful or even harmful. So it's not the only way of knowing, but in science it is the gold standard. If we're trying to prove a new medication works – or new psychotherapy works, or in this case, a, a suicide-specific framework, um, you've got to, it's actually a pretty, there's a, there's a reason why there are so few of these, is because they're very difficult to do. They take a fair amount of money. Uh, institutional review boards are very wary of these studies because of the perceived liability and the risk involved. And just publishing, like our initial RCT within the Seattle study, the, what's called the next day appointment study, does not get you into empirical validation. You really need this independent lab to also demonstrate a causal impact. And we kind of got that with the Danish study. Um, but you really need replication and you really need big samples that are well-powered to get a big effect. And so it, it really requires you know, a number of studies. And in the suicide prevention field, a lot of people don't know that there are not many proven effective treatments. You know, There are probably maybe 20, 25 studies that have shown um, interventions that have worked, and a number of those have not been replicated. So when you're talking about replicated randomized control trials, the interventions with the best data are dialectical behavior therapy, which is number one. There are two forms of cognitive therapy, one coming out of Aaron Beck's lab called Cognitive Therapy for Suicide Prevention, or CTSP, and another one coming out of uh, from David Rudd's work with Craig Bryant, which is called BCBT, or Brief Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And those two cognitive interventions are suicide-specific relatively short-term interventions, both highly effective in reducing attempt behavior. We feel like we've got pretty robust replication of that intervention. Uh, Marshawn Holloway also does work in that area um, using an inpatient version of that model. And then CAMS. So we have two published RCTs of CAMS, two unpublished RCTs showing support, and then a number of these that are ongoing, and then the seven correlational studies. So I felt pretty confident talking about CAMS as an evidence-based practice because there's been so much replication of this overall finding of rapid reduction in ideation, symptom distress, increased hope, better retention to care, um, patients like it more than usual care. But until we really sort of do the, the big study with attempt behaviors being sort of definitively attended to, 
we're not going to be able to say it's an empirically validated intervention. So it's it's quite a long road to prove something actually works and doesn't cause harm. Right. That idea of proving things scientifically is sometimes very hard to wrap our mind around. We see the suicide rates. We see charts going in the last 20, 30, 50 years, and the suicide rate remaining relatively stable during that time. It's some variations, obviously. Listening to you, you're talking about we really only have a few really validated treatments and how difficult it is to really prove what is working for this population. So would you say we're really still at the early stages of proven treatments? Well, I kind of went both ways. I want to say that we're at a really exciting crossroads because we've got now treatments that we know are effective. The problem is they're hardly used at all, and there are reasons for that. But when you think about what is done for a typical suicidal patient or suicidal veteran in the case of the VA, most of what is being done clinically, at least not yet, enjoys much empirical support. So, for example, I would argue that, well, I can just say in our in our clinical trial with the Army, the, the vast majority, I think it was 80% of the, of the soldiers in the study were being medicated. And the, even the most generous interpretation of the data would say that the, the empirical support for medicine helping with suicidal risk is mixed. And uh, some, I have a much more critical eye than that. But I, I think you can say, I think we can say in fairness that there's pretty clear evidence for lithium um, that needs replication. There's pretty clear up clozapine, but that needs to be um, replicated. There's very mixed uh, data on SSRIs or serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, antidepressants. A lot of excitement about ketamine, um, but still the effect is very brief. So interesting to me uh, and somewhat quizzical outside of tradition and sort of the way we've always done things that the modal suicidal person is being medicated and hospitalized. And the hospitalization piece is very controversial and, and sort of contentious these days because there are those like Marshall Linehan who are saying that hospitalization is not helpful. In an even more extreme sense, there's a psychiatrist in Australia named uh, Matthew Large um, who's making the argument that hospitalizations are causing a subset of suicides. And what I think is pretty clear from the literature is that most most inpatient settings are not sufficiently treating suicide risk per se. If any treatment's going on, it's mostly medication, and there's that issue there around the efficacy of medicine for ideation and attempt behaviors and, and sort of the, the minimal support for that, with a lot of these medicines not really kicking in until long after the discharge, there's a very clear evidence that the risk increases after discharge. Michael Bostrick published a paper that showed any single uh, inpatient hospitalization increases lifetime risk forever. There's very clear literature that the post-discharge period, especially two weeks post-discharge, is a very high-risk period. And then the question more clinically is, you know, what's actually being done? with a high-risk suicidal person while they're on that inpatient unit for five or six days. Above and beyond um, getting some medicine or maybe going to a group or two uh, or three, they're probably not getting much suicide-specific care. It's one of the reasons I'm a huge fan of Marjan Holloway and her work at the Informed Services University of the Health Sciences, where she's doing the cognitive therapy intervention that Duck's group developed um, that is suicide-specific during that hospital stay. It's called post-admission cognitive therapy, or PACT. And Marjan's been um, doing a randomized control trial of 
pack for a number of years now. I think she's moving into data analysis relatively soon. But that makes total sense to me that that if we are going to hospitalize a veteran or a patient in different inpatient settings, that they should be getting something very suicide specific while they're there. At a minimum, some discussion about safety planning, which of course is VA policy. There should absolutely, in my view, be a discussion about means restriction with family members if possible. Um, it's an opportunity to provide information about resources, the National Lifeline, um, you know, that there should be minimal sort of suicide-specific interventions that are done prior to discharge. And in my view, um, experientially, from what I've seen in, when I go to different hospitals and also from the literature on this, even those simple interventions are not being exercised in a reliable way. So it kind of makes you wonder, you know, what are we doing? I got a call last year from a, a brother of a highly decorated special operations service member who was in the Army, major patriot, you know, in my view, uh, had been deployed a number of times and had served the country honorably and highly decorated. And he left the Army and um, became depressed, and uh, the family is very concerned about his suicidal risk, and they hospitalized him, and he was in the hospital for 10 days. And then the day after his discharge, he shot himself and died. And the brother you know, was saying to me, how could this happen? You know, he, he was in the hospital for 10 days. You know, I was diplomatic about it, but I said he, pro he probably didn't get much suicide-specific care. We really think of inpatient psychiatric care as like the kitchen sink. It's, it's the biggest intervention we've got, but in my view, it's not sufficiently suicidal yet. It's not just my view. The Joint Commissions, I think, actually has weighed in on this in the last year to say that we've got to get much more suicide-specific in our care and stop thinking about suicide as a symptom of a major psychiatric disorder because that's not what the research shows. The research shows that targeting suicide as the bullseye of our care is where the action is in terms of, of treatments that work. Mm -hmm. I like that idea that it's the bullseye of the care. Yeah, and it's not how a lot of us were raised. I mean, I was raised to think that you know suicide was a symptom of depression. So you treat the depression and the suicide ideation goes away. And that may still be true. And that, that randomized control trial might be being conducted right now that I'm just not aware of. We're using an SSRI to go to attack that, that depression is going to reduce ideation and attempt behavior. But so far in this literature, that, that model has not been supported by the evidence. Right. And it seems like I mean, treating depression takes time, whereas suicide is an impulsive act. Am I right there? Well, I guess what I'm trying to get at is the treatment of depression is something that happens over span of time. Sure. But that suicide itself is something that uh, impulsive, it's an act that's much quicker than that, or its time frame is not that long. I think it's confusing, and I think there are major misunderstandings between the epidemiology of these disorders and the incidence of suicide. So. The way I always think about it is that there are millions of Americans who would meet criteria for clinical depression under the DSM or ICD diagnostic, you know, nosologies. But the vast, vast majority of them are not going to kill themselves. In fact, the vast majority of them don't even have suicidal thoughts. So you, you think about the specificity, if you think about it statistically around sensitivity and specificity, the, the specificity of suicide being connected to depression is actually quite low. 
And so it's it's it may be necessary, but not sufficient. You know, it, 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 the, the fact of the matter is that most depressed people are not suicidal. And so there's this, I think, a large misunderstanding that all suicides are by depressed people. And if we think of 100 and was 120 Americans will die by the end of today, you know, a subset of them, depending on who you read, 40 percent, maybe 50 percent, may be clinically depressed. But that doesn't include all the bipolars and schizophrenics and anxious patients and those with substance abuse or personality disorders. So it's just not true that depression and suicide are synonymous. There's a correlation, but it's just not getting back to the causal discussion that if depression caused all suicides, we'd have a lot of dead people. And so that's that's the tricky thing about suicide is it's not nonpartisan. It attaches to anxiety disorders and PTSD and relationship conflicts. That loops back to you know a point that I think is especially exciting about CAMS is that we, in the CAMS model, we don't tell the patient what needs to be treated. We actually solicit from the patient um, what they think <laughs> is the, the the root cause of their suicidal struggle. And in the CAMS model, we call these drivers. It, it seems so simple, but it's actually kind of a radical notion that at the really critical stage of treatment planning in the in the CAMS framework, you know, I'll say to you, Joe, what now having reviewed, you know, all the things that we've discussed and about your struggle, what do you think are the two reasons for having to take your life? You know, what, what are the two problems that put your life in peril? And a remarkably small percentage of people say my depression. It's remarkably small, maybe maybe ten, fifteen, twenty percent. About forty to fifty percent, depending on the population, are gonna say, My uh girlfriend dumping me or my commander disciplining me, the vast, vast majority of the drivers that we identify in CAMs are relational. And then what follows from that is uh, issues of vocation. Um, and what follows next is our issues of the self. Symptoms of depression or anxiety or bipolar illness or psychosis, it's there, but it's not a leading candidate in, the, in our driver uh, research. And that, that surprises people. Um, and, and the thing about it that's, to me, sort of magical is that patients really like being asked. <laughs> you know, instead of me telling them, okay, we've got to treat your depression, and so we're going to do CBT and add an SSRI, and, uh, and we're going to attack your depression to make you no longer suicidal. We create the conditions for the patient to, to basically be, we call it a co-author of their own treatment plan, but, you know, to basically say, well, it's it's I, I can't bear to be deployed again, or I can't I can't stand that my my VA benefits are not coming through, or or that my compensation pension exam has has been delayed again. You know, and and our VA population, a lot of this is um, can oftentimes be linked to their their service and their 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 care in the VA um, or the support that they're getting from their disability um, if they've got a you know if they've, if they've got a disability. So uh, a lot of it's very situation specific, and the and the beauty of it, Joe, is a lot of it's really treatable with medication or with psychotherapy or couple therapy or group, and so it's not it's not like we don't know how to, tr how to treat these drivers, but it's in my view kind of presumptuous to know what's best for the patient. Although you and I went to a lot of school to do this, uh, when the when the sort of the, the gold mine is just simply asking the patient, and they'll tell you. So simple to to yeah. put the patient at the center. Huh? Yeah, uh, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be rocket science. But but what I think is also interesting about it in our research is that 
a lot of times we see, we watch a lot of videos, obviously, of clinicians trying to do CAMs adherently in our clinical trials. And a lot of times you'll see the patients say, well, my depression and anxiety are my, are my two problems. And what we do in CAMs is, is, you know, take that at face value, but also say, well, what exactly makes you depressed? And they'll say, well, the fact that, you know, I was sexually assaulted last year. And it, it brought back all my memories of when I was abused by my uncle when I was a little girl. And, you know, so it's, it's, so, much, it's so much more profound to focus on that trauma or that history than to sort of take at face value depression. But a lot of times the patients think that's what we want to hear. So there's that piece of it is that we've been acculturated to thinking the whole field has been, and I'm not trying to be a know-it-all about this, but the whole field is acculturated to the idea a suicidal person belongs in the hospital and needs medicine that MDs and PhDs and social workers and clinicians of every stripe know what's best for the patient. But in our approach to this, we say, gosh, you know, the secrets lie within the patient themselves. And the big thing about CAMS is getting out of an adversarial relationship over the issue of suicide and getting into a collaborative relationship and then really engaging the patient to say, you're the, the gatekeeper of the secrets of what puts your life in peril. If you can share with me those problems and issues that, that put your life in peril, by God, we have a half a dozen things to treat those issues. And for a lot of suicidal people, they're surprised that we're so good at treating PTSD or we're so good at, at helping people find jobs or get vocational rehab or counseling. And, and when we sort of throw a bunch of interventions at these drivers, invariably that act alone engenders hope that we can treat the things that put you at risk. And so we in CAMS, we kind of switch that up and create a different dynamic, and the patients like it. And yet, in the grand scheme, CAMS is used very rarely. EBT is used very rarely. CTSP and CBT, DCBT are used very rarely. And so it's a, it's a bit of a systems issue and a bit of a systems challenge that we – it's hard to imagine how we're going to save lives clinically, and that's not the only way to save lives in the, in the grand scheme of things, as you notice the – We've got sort of a stubborn rate that, that, that refuses to go down and actually is a bit on the increase. But the clinical part of it is that the lion's share of interventions that we're using are, are not proven to work. And these ones that are proven to work to some extent are so rarely used. I like how the model you describe is one that trusts the patient to know something, to set up that collaboration with them. I want to switch gears just slightly because of something you just said about a systems approach to this. That systems approach reminds me of the Zero Suicide Initiative. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. So. I was a member of the Clinical Care Task Force under the Action Alliance, which is the federal public-private partnership that has 11 different task forces, at least last I checked. And so the Clinical Care Task Force was charged with kind of trying to provide for federal-level guidance to the, the clinical intervention, suicide prevention part of the picture. So I was uh, on that task force along with Kate Comtois, and we started talking a bit about our research um, in CAMS, and Kate's also an expert in DBT and, and done a lot of research with clinical trial research with Marsha Linehan. And what was fascinating about those early discussions was that 
a lot of the people on the task force were policy people and people that worked um, in the healthcare um, delivery serve world. And we talked about averting hospitalizations and using suicide-specific interventions and the idea of sort of transparency and getting out of the adversarial relationship and collaborating. And I say this with no false modesty. We, they were hanging on every word. And Kate and I kind of looked at each other and said, well, they actually are interested in what we have to say because we, we feel like we've been writing about this and publishing papers and trying to do this research for years, and, and no one was paying attention. And, but these guys were really interested in it. And so that was, of course, exciting because everyone wants to feel like what they have, what their research is doing is, is meaningful. And so what we really started to put together was this idea that there are treatments that we know are effective, but that the systems are not sufficiently working in the direction of clinical suicide risk reduction and, and treatment. And that was really sort of the, the – there was a, a report that came out of that that was a systems approach to, to clinical suicide prevention. And then that led to the genesis of, uh, of the Zero Suicide Movement. And to be candid, I, I really didn't like the title um, because I, I felt like it set a false expectation in the public's eye and in the media, set clinicians up to, frankly, to be sort of blamed or held accountable if there ever was a suicide. And what was explained to me at the time was that, you know, it's aspirational and how many suicides would ever be acceptable and if we don't shoot for zero. And a lot of this was based on the, the work of uh, – the Henry Ford Clinic in Detroit, where they had developed this perfect depression treatment, and I, I, I got all that. I got sort of the, 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 so to speak, the rhetoric of that and the aspirational aspects of that. But I, I still did object to this idea that that any healthcare provider would ever guarantee or aspire or, or think that zero was a realistic goal. I, I can't imagine zero, surgeons doing you know zero fatal surgeries. You know, just it just. It just was not something that sat well with me. But the right. thing was, it got people's attention. It got a lot of conversations started. And I can say this now as a veteran of this field, it has been a game changer. The zero suicide policy movement has gotten more traction, more attention, has changed more systems in a shorter time than anything in my 33-odd years in this field. And I'm a pragmatist, and so I'm a convert. I've embraced it, and I'm a member of the Zero Suicide faculty, and I uh, continue to do training. Uh, I'm sort of the, the intervention treatment guy. I like that it's systems-focused. I like that a system of care does not have to sort of begin from scratch figuring out how are we going to do early identification, how are we going to develop an electronic pathway, how are we going to sort of collect data. Um, it sort of has, from A to Z, all the steps that it would be needed in a system to raise its standard of care specific to suicide. And I find that to be extraordinarily helpful. And so, you know, to me, what's been exciting about it is that it's working. I've gotten over the, uh, to some extent, uh, the, the problem with the name because the name has actually sort of garnered a focus and attention to this topic like nothing has heretofore been able to do. My personal credo is best possible care. And that's, in our training company, that's our that's our model, best possible care, because I think that we can deliver that in a reliable way. We can deliver evidence-based assessment and evidence-based intervention, and we, we know it's effective. It's not perfect, and it's still growing and evolving, 
But that's something I feel I can jump up and down and say, yep, you know, I can I can relatively guarantee a reliable uh, delivery of solid, thoughtful, evidence-based assessment and treatment. But you know, evidence-based, you know, that's the the idea of that notion is not is compelling, you know, uh, as something like zero suicide. There it is. I you know I've I've, I've come full circle on it, and uh, we really you know are seeing it making a difference, not just in the U.S. I was in Australia, you know, a month and a half ago, two, a couple months ago, where it's being rolled out in the Asian Pacific region in Australia. There's a big foothold in the United Kingdom and in Ireland. So it it is uh, it is a game changer in the field of suicide prevention, and I'm I'm on board. Oh, that's great! Really, something that we want our audience to hear, so that they can come full circle. You know, if they're feeling like this is the idea of zero suicide is too frightening or I feel blamed by it, getting around that, finding a way around that and seeing the success of it. It's really great to yeah. hear you talk about it. Yeah, I think your best your best defense from the natural finger pointing in litigation and root cause analysis or, you know, malpractice wrongful death tort litigation is to do good practice. If your documentation is sound and you're using assessments that are evidence-based and you're using treatments that actually work, it's hard for any plaintiff's attorney or inspector general or, you know, people that are sort of doing, you know, quote-unquote doing a witch hunt, you know, to really find much fault. We've, we've had cases in, in CAMS where there have been tragically, heartbreakingly, you know, fatal outcomes where basically family members have, have gone to, you know, pursue litigation. They produce the record of, with all these SSFs of a very suicide-specific intervention and treatments that were specific to the suicide risk and the tracking the risk until it resolves. And basically, the plaintiff's attorneys just sort of like say, "Well, you know, oh well," because they can't really demonstrate negligence. You know, they can't really say there wasn't a sufficient assessment of suicide. The treatment plan wasn't sufficiently focused on suicide. They they dropped the ball. And so, you know, from a litigation or root cause analysis standpoint, if if you're doing superb work, if you're doing DBT or BCBT or CAMS, you're doing something that we know works. Uh, I'll I'll testify at your trial. I mean, because that what more can we do really? But things that work and have been proven to work, and that's but that's still such a rare thing in the grand scheme of things in the mental health world. So that's that's really the uphill battle is. The fact that we do know things that work that are used so rarely, and I, I don't say it grudgingly, it's, it's hard to change decades of care. You know, the, the asylum movement was a philosophical and social breakthrough in Europe when it was first conceived. You know, moving the lunatic from sort of the fringes of society and from, you know, pr- prisons and, and from, you know, these sort of uh, awful ways that, that mentally ill people were treated into what was meant to be a kind of a sanctuary. And of course, we don't think of asylums as sanctuaries, but, but they, were, they were truly <clears throat> historically well-intended. You know, what we saw was the evolution throughout Europe and into the UK, and then ultimately coming across the pond to a, a model where mentally ill people lived in mental institutions, uh, you know, psychiatric facilities. For many years, when I was first in the field and I was a psych tech working in a psych hospital, the patients there, it's a private facility out in Virginia, they were hospitalized for six months, 
10 months, three months without batting an eye, and you didn't have to be suicidal to be admitted. So, you know, when I think of my 30 plus years of professional lifetime, that we're now down to lengths of stay in the five to six day range with the modal stay probably in two or three days, where there's very limited treatment going on, it's extraordinary. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary change of what was the status quo for decades. It is daunting, and I'm not discouraged, but, but you know, the fact that so few people use treatments, and we're talking life and death, is sometimes discouraging, but, but also a challenge that, you know, if we want to save lives, you've got to do things that actually work, and, you know, there are a handful of things that work, and we should be using them more. We've got these treatments and moving them from we know they work to let's get people to use them. It's not something that really ever happens overnight. And we like to think that no, it's, as soon as yeah. penicillin was developed, um, the next day everybody who needed it was getting it. But that's not always the way it works, is it? No, Alex Crosby at the CDC has said that it takes 17 years, I believe it's 17 years for a published paper of a randomized controlled trial, something that's effective to actually become part of routine practice. And you, you can pretty much actually to the year see, you know, the first paper that Marshall Linehan published on dialectical behavior therapy and the pervasiveness of DBT today relative, I, I want to sort of contradict myself because DBT is a fairly well-known treatment um, around the world, uh, still not widely used, pretty labor-intensive obviously, but but robustly proven in the literature, uh, the research literature. But it took it took the better part of 20 years for it to become an established treatment. The thing I think that I wrestle with the most, we, we do process improvement projects. So we, we go, and I did that in Vision 7, for example, or I go into medical center, and we're trying to raise the standard of care. So we'll do a, an evaluation and then a training and then a, basically a follow-on quality assurance kind of intervention. And the thing that I, that, you know, I find really common is that a lot of clinicians are afraid of these patients, and I understand that, and they would rather not treat these patients and they would rather hospitalize them. It, whether that is helpful or not, that's it's, it sort of feels like I'm I'm protecting my liability by doing that, and I don't really want to work with them anyway. It's hard to do, and that's a hard thing to overcome. That's a part of the battle is, is the idea. I know when I first published the, the first Guilford book about CAMS you know, a little over 10 years ago, the idea that, that you would begin the engagement with the idea of trying to keep the patient out of the hospital was actually a relatively radical idea that a lot of people objected to and that hospitalization should be the last response versus the first response was just sort of crazy. And now 10 years later, there's a little bit more receptivity to it, but I think for a lot of providers, they feel you know better safe than sorry. What's interesting about that is people still kill themselves in inpatient units. You know, in the thousands. So last year, the Joint Commissions came out with a Sentinel event alert saying, well, you know, actually, maybe all these suicidal people that are being hospitalized shouldn't necessarily be hospitalized, that they should be getting suicide-specific care, that we should be very thoughtful if they are hospitalized about discharge and how they're being handled at discharge. And so the Joint Commissions is basically saying they're they're sick and tired of suicide being a leading sentinel event, almost always in the top five, of bad outcomes, obviously really bad, tragic, fatal outcomes in healthcare environments, including inpatient care, where we are supposed to be able to keep people safe. And that is not meant to be disrespectful to anybody listening 
that works in patient care, you know, that I think that there's a lot that we can do within those environments to decrease risk and, and need to environmentally. But when I was a psych tech, I walked in on, on two different patients in the middle of hanging themselves for 15-minute checks and intervened, and, and you know, and they were, there wasn't a, a tragic outcome. But, you know, somebody shouldn't be able to take their life on an inpatient unit, and still people do. So I think in some ways it, it has sort of pierced a kind of a uh, – an emperor has no clothes kind of scenario is what I think about it, is that, you know, we, we kind of act like hospitalization is, is going to save lives. And I just don't see how that works unless we're doing suicide-specific care during that stay. And I don't think there's a lot of suicide-specific care or sufficient suicide-specific care at most inpatient stays. So it's kind of magical thinking. <laughs> you know, it's that, it's that brother who's, whose brother was hospitalized for 10 days. How could he have possibly killed himself the next day? Well, he probably didn't get much suicide-specific care while he was there. And then, and then the, for, the, for the discharging patient, one of the reasons we're so concerned about post-discharge risk, it's like, that's all you got? Joe, you hospitalized me for 10 days, and that's the kitchen sink? And, and now I'm really hopeless. And that's our concern about the potential iatrogenic effect of even a lengthy stay. But if they're doing post-mission cognitive therapy, or they're doing a DBT skills group, or they're learning about means restriction, or about you know they're, they're getting sort of minimal suicide-specific care, then they've actually gained something by virtue of spending those that handful of days versus just being, you know, frankly sitting in a, you know, in the day room watching TV and going to some groups that they don't probably find especially helpful. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to offend anybody in this. And I'm not trying to be a, a know-it-all or smarty pants. Everything I'm saying is not so much opinion, but but there's a literature on this. And uh you know, I I've I've certainly had people, you know, sort of get upset or object to some of the points I'm making. So I, I'm very sensitive that people work very hard and are, you know, are in their mind um, and maybe in reality doing potentially life-saving work. And so I don't mean any disrespect towards those folks. But unless we're doing things that we know work, we're kind of working under superstition or, or sort of habit, assuming that things are effective that aren't necessarily effective. That's where this whole sort of contemporary debate around hospitalization is so contentious is that people, a number of people, myself included, are invested in a hospital model, but I'm invested in a hospital model where there, where there actually is something that you get for that hospitalization versus just being pulled from your job or out of school for a week um, without much to show for it while, while you've been in the, in the uh, inpatient unit for those days. that point home when you talk about quality improvement and this idea of constantly looking at how can we make these situations better? How can we make the process that we're working on better? How can we improve it? It's not so much we're not blaming folks, what we're saying is let's make it better. Right. And so I think that's very important and, and a very good distinction. The next area that I want to touch on or give you a chance to talk about is exciting work that you see coming up. So to me, it sounds like on the horizon, you see some some very exciting things coming up. Can you talk about those? Love to. So a big thing that my lab is especially focused on is things that any clinician listening to this knows is that not all suicidal people are the same. And are there 
reliable ways of establishing different kinds of suicidal states. And if there are different states that we can reliably establish, then the idea would be that you don't have a hammer on all the world's a nail, that you you have a bunch of tools, not just a hammer. You've got a screwdriver, you've got a wrench, you've got different things. So if you're tracking the metaphor, you know, what I think we're venturing into, at least in the work that I'm involved with, is getting better at identifying different kinds of suicidal subtypes that might then optimally respond to different kinds of tailored treatments. We do that within CAMS because the nature of the way CAMS works, by having the patient define their drivers, I might be using a range of treatments, anywhere from behavior activation to insight-oriented psychotherapy um, to uh, group therapy, couples therapy, CPT, EMDR. I mean, whatever might work to treat drivers is, is basically accommodated within the model. But the real thing that I'm most excited about these days is uh, recent research that we've been doing at the University of Nevada, Reno, using a SMART design, which is called a, which is actually an acronym for a sequential multiple assignment randomized trial. And so in a SMART design, you actually have an initial randomization, uh, which is referred to as stage one, and you watch the response, and then there's a second randomization. What's so cool about a SMART design is that you can look at the sequencing of care, you can look at differential treatments for different states, you can look at within subjects, between subjects, cross-sequentially across these different randomizations. Study I'm referencing is um, one that we're, we're very laborly, uh, intensively um, analyzing the data that looked at college students um, in a university counseling center environment who are randomized to treatment as usual or to CAMS, and the majority of them respond to CAMS quite well within eight weeks, which is good, so we keep an eye on them. But those who don't get randomized again, and they get randomized to either 16 weeks of CAMS or 16 weeks of dialectical behavior therapy. What's really exciting about that is we can see cases, for example, that have been stabilized by CAMS, but they're not out of the woods, who need actually a, sort of a, the intensity and the duration of DBT. And we can watch that sequencing. And we, we've seen in other studies that that's, those are some of our really nice cases of a borderline patient who's got sort of a chronically suicidal mindset responds well to CAMS but really needs the intensity and the duration of DBT to develop more skills around dysregulation and mindfulness and mastery of, of their of their sort of lifelong struggle. I'm just totally psyched about this is that we, we, we're seeing now within our data sets people that are pretty rapid responders to CAMS and those who might be in need of a lot more intensity and duration of care. You know, that to me is sort of really exciting because then now we're getting into sort of a kind of a, a dosing of care or prescriptive treatments or something that you think about along those lines. And what we keep on looking at, uh, this is just one study based on our uh, Army study, is that lurking within a lot of our clinical trial data are fascinating things that may, you know, sort of open up a whole new line of research. So the one I'm most excited about is a master's student of mine who who's been doing research on perseveration. For people that are not familiar with CAMS, in the first session, a big part of the experience for the patient is to complete the first page of the suicide status form. And there are various quantitative assessments. I've got really solid replicated psychometrics and the building reliability of those, of those quantitative assessments. But there are lots of qualitative or narrative parts of the assessment. So there are opportunities to describe your psychological pain, 
in your own in your own written words or your and what you're most hopeless about, what you find most stressful, to literally write down reasons for living and literally write down reasons for dying. And uh, and there's a final assessment question that says if, if, if there's one thing that could change for you that would make you no longer suicidal, what would that be? And so a soldier might say or a veteran might say a time machine to start all over and a new life. Okay, so that's that's a that's kind of an out there response, but that's their response. And what we're finding in this most recent study, we got to replicate it because it's it's because it's so exciting, is that when people repeat the same content in these written responses more than four times, and this was established through a cluster analysis of the different kinds of responses that people write, they have much higher suicide ideation, and they do not get better in our treatment. Their their ideation does not drop down. Um, the way that we and you know have seen in study after study. So in other words, you get a veteran who is on all these different written opportunities, saying my wife, my marriage, my wife, my marriage, my wife, my wife, my wife. That keeps on repeating that that this particular issue with the wife is what is sort of at the heart of their suicidal struggle. And if they say that four more times, they're a special person who is not going to respond to our treatment as most patients readily do. Whereas if somebody is has more heterogeneity and they're saying, you know, my job and my kids and uh, my, my alcohol use, but they're not repeating themselves, they respond spectacularly. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think it's really interesting. It moves us into this new area of looking at how treatment is working as we're delivering it. And I can't help but think about the cancer treatment, really, where in the early days we just we had one approach and we did that one approach no matter what kind of cancer was in the hopes that it would work. And then we later learned that there were different types and different types needed different treatment. And as we're delivering the treatment, we monitor that and make changes based on that. Is that what you're getting at here? That's precisely what I'm getting at is that there are, I would contend, ways of delineating or, or, or sort of revealing different kinds of suicidal states that do really require not a one-size-fits-all approach. And when you think about a perseverator, it's kind of like what Steinman was talking about 30 years ago when he talked about psychological myopia. They have funneled down, and if you think of it sort of like a, a visual test, they have funneled down into this one issue, and they can't see anything else. And there's probably a neurological element to this where they're using the same nerve, you know, they're using the same route, you know, neurologically. It's a well-worn path and there's not much branching or there's, you know, it's, it's a, it is a, it's a rut. It's kind of a, a neurological rut. If I'm the CAM provider and I've got a veteran that's, that's sort of locked in like this and you're my social worker that, who's an expert in couples therapy, well, to treat this, we may well my patient and his wife into into couple therapy because we can save the marriage, maybe we save the life. However, if the marriage is doomed and this person can't imagine a life without his spouse, that could be a very lethal scenario. And so what we're wrestling with is if somebody is that sort of locked in in a neurological rut, 
or this kind of myopia, how do you treat that? You know, how do you sort of break that up or get them thinking differently? But just at the cross-sectional level, the the idea that you can have somebody in 20 minutes fill out the SSF and that we can differentiate a non, you know, sort of a, what we call a, a repetitive or referring to it as a, a, a extreme perseverator versus someone who has more heterogeneity in their, their written responses and, and now have an expectation, uh, which you got to replicate, that these two are going to respond quite differently to treatment. That's a really exciting kind of thing, and that's what we're we're really after in the in the work that we do. Mm-hmm. And that throughout this conversation, one of the things I've been very impressed with is how you've taken this idea that you developed some 30 years ago and have kept making adjustments to it, learning, testing it, learning from those tests, and then making the changes or trying different things. And to me, that a great approach, a scientific approach to a problem that has been so difficult to, to solve, and that's uh, suicide. Well, I suppose one thought is that I've just been rigid and kind of stayed in a very narrow lane, but there's, there is a kind of a virtue to that over time because you can continue to evolve something and craft it. And then the other thing I might add is that you know when you accumulate enough data about what this thing is and people are aware of what it is, I can get you know a colleague approaching me the idea of a whole new intervention that you could do in an emergency department, which is this project that I'm doing with Linda Miff, which is developing an avatar or a relational agent on a tablet for a veteran that's going to come to the emergency department who's typically going to wait two, four, six hours to see the resident or the attending. And that that experience of sitting in the emergency department, which is typically a pretty chaotic environment, and if I'm a smoker, I'm probably going through severe nicotine withdrawal, frankly not that therapeutic if you're highly suicidal. Linda had this idea of using that window of time as an opportunity to do a, an avatar intervention and she wanted to name it after me, and I went along with this, but the idea is that Dr. Dave will engage you as an avatar in a highly modified version of CAMS for the next hour or so, such that when your attending does show up, the avatar engagement will generate a report based on everything I just described to you, Joe, which is the, the kind of suicidal risk that we've been studying and learned about with ideas about your disposition. Uh, this got funded by NIH in a small business innovation research grant, and we're just wrapping up the proof of concept phase one, and I've done a, a number of focus groups. And it turns out that many, many patients actually like and or prefer dealing with an avatar on a computer than actually dealing with some of us as providers, especially around shame-inducing topics like abuse or substance abuse or suicide. And so I show that as an example of I've stayed in my lane, and I appreciate your feedback on that because I, I think there's been some virtue to that. But by virtue of of having sort of stayed and evolved in that direction, there's now these innovations that can be introduced that take, in this case, CAMs in a direction I could have never dreamed of three or four years ago, where there's this, you know, this avatar of me engaging the patient. The other really 
cool thing about that intervention is that we're also using pure bridgers, and of course the VA is huge on you know engaging consumers and and uh, obviously paraprofessionals as adjuncts to clinical care. So that so you can engage with Dr. Dave, you can engage a peer bridger that um, has described to you their story of having gone to the emergency department, perhaps being hospitalized. Another option is that there's a, a self-soothing sort of mindfulness-based exercise. And you can do all three of these things, you know, in the five or six hours that you wait to see the doctor. So it, it, it has the potential to really scale up an ED-based intervention that would really significantly supplement what the doctor in the ED is going to do dispositionally with you. And then the idea would be if that's a successful experience and they're sort of embracing the model and it seems to be helping, you might avert a hospitalization. And in the course of averting that hospitalization, Dr. Dave could then send you um, carrying texts or carrying emails or even carrying phone calls in an automated form after you do the ED. And there's a, a literature on, on you know non-demand carrying follow-up. So I, I just I love the idea that you know that there's so much energy and excitement with technology. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an old guy, so I don't, I don't really think this way, but I love having collaborators that can kind of take things in, into a new direction, a new level. And I think the VA and DOD are especially enamored with a lot of these technological applications. And I think with cause, they, they're going to be cost effective. Many of them have emerging or even fairly well-established evidence. And it, it really takes us to another level and uh, hopefully you know, makes a difference. I think it does. I think it will. Dave, we've had this wide-ranging conversation, and I really want to say that I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and our audience today. Is there anything you'd like to – well, let me say before that, is we're really going to look forward to having you back where you can tell us about some of these things, some of the RCTs, some of these uh, exciting new directions that you can come back and tell us, give us a, an update on what's happening with them. Any final words for us? No, I, I just, I'm a fan of these podcasts, so I, you know, I'm always happy to come back. I think it's, it's a great forum, and hopefully for the clinicians out there, especially VA clinicians who are near and dear to my heart, I hope you don't get discouraged. You don't hear a lot of good news stories about VA or DOD, but I always say, in reporters don't really care to hear about this, but you know, I say there's no organization in the world doing more for suicide prevention than VA and DOD. And you're not going to read about it in the Post or the New York Times, but we know that the VA and DOD are, are um, game changers in this field. And so I, I'm just really appreciative and, and hope that people don't get discouraged because I know it's hard work. But um, I think we're, as a field, maturing to a point now where there's some really exciting work going on. And hopefully with the systems-level focus that we've discussed here, sort of the, the proper recipe or ingredients for major change that's going to save our veterans' lives and our service members' lives and outside of these systems, you know, in a larger picture. So I'm just very grateful to have the opportunity, Joe, and uh, would love to come back uh, whenever you would care to have me. That's it for today's podcast. And again, many thanks to Dr. Dave Jobs for chatting with us today. Please check out the links on the webpage for this podcast to learn more about the work that David has done and continues to do. As always, please get in touch with us with any comments, feedback, or questions, and to take a moment to subscribe to our Short Takes podcast. 
Join us next time for more interviews related to suicide prevention, resilience, and well-being. Thank you.